Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Author and academic Alison Booth has just published her second book, The Indigo Sky. Her first novel, Stillwater Creek, was published in 2010 and was well received by critics and readers alike. The Indigo Sky is the sequel to Stillwater Creek. Set in the fictional town of Gingera in 1961, the indigo sky weaves together the stories of butcher and stargazer George, the young musical prodigy Philip, and former refugee Ilona Vincent and her daughter Zidra. Born in Victoria and brought up in Sydney, Alison Booth lived in the UK for over 20 years. In 1984, she completed a PhD at the London School of Economics and has enjoyed a successful academic career ever since. She's currently a professor of economics at the Australian National University. She's now working on the third instalment in her series, which will be set in 1970. So thanks so much for joining us today, Alison. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Now, Alison, you're on to your second novel, The Indigo Sky, which is the sequel to Stillwater Creek. Let's start off just telling people a little bit about the novel and about the first one as well, for those who haven't read that yet. And then then we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, your life as a writer. So, um, yeah, Indigo Sky. Uh, yes, The Indigo Sky. And you'd like me to tell you a little bit about what it's about? Yeah, and how, how it all came about. Um, well, basically, The Indigo Sky is about bullying. Mm. And how it all came about was that I wrote um, the first book in, in what's going to be a trilogy, the um, which is called Stillwater Creek. Mm-hmm. And I set that in 1957 because I really wanted to write about an immigrant coming to Australia and then coming to a, a, a eventually coming to a, to a small coastal town and how she fitted in or didn't fit in with the locals. <clears throat> and I chose 1957 because I wanted to write about someone who had survived the Second World War mm. and all of the um, tremendous upheaval that, that took place after that. Um, so... That's why I chose 1957. And then when Random House offered um, a two-book deal for when they made an offer on Stillwater Creek, Mm. they actually stipulated that they wanted either a prequel or a sequel. And I didn't really want to write a prequel. Well, to be honest, I didn't want at that time to write a sequel. (laughs) But then I got very enthusiastic about it later. But the notion of doing a prequel, I think, would have been very difficult because... I already had all the characters in place in this little fictional town, Ginger, on the south coast. Mm. And it would have been hard to go back for for all of them because they came from such different places. Mm. So I chose to set it four years on when 
the characters um, would have developed a bit more, especially the younger ones. Um, and I wanted to write about some of those. So the Indigo Sky um, picks up the story in, uh, towards the end of 1961 and moves through to the start of 1962. And it's the, the main stories are about um, Lorna Hunter, who's a, a young, very resilient and strong Aboriginal woman who was part of a stolen generation. And also another sort of parallel story, if you like, of um, a young uh, boy who was sent against his wishes to a rather upmarket private school in Sydney. And so the, the, these may seem very different stories, but in fact there are some parallels because both of these kids um, have been taken forcibly, in a way, away from their families. Mm. In Lorna's case, her family is a loving family, but very impoverished, dispossessed. In the other child, Philip Chapman's case, it's from a very affluent family but um, um, who, who sent him away. And both of these um, young people are... Um, communication is... is difficult if not impossible for them. So in the case of the um, young Aboriginal woman, she that censorship at the um, Gajigala Girls Home, which is where she was sent, and so she can't get any um, word out to her family at all. She cannot stay in touch with her family. So at the start of the Indigo Sky, she devises a cunning plan, if you like, to try and um, uh, contact her parents, and that's how the story begins. Yeah. And she um, relies on the help of Ilona and Zidra, the very strong mother-daughter pair um, yeah. who featured in Stillwater Creek. And so that's where the story begins. How are these, how are these young people going to survive this, this grim situation for each of them? Um, and when I was thinking about Lorna Hunter, because really I wanted her story to be a part of this, but I didn't want to tell it from her point of view, of course, because we've already taken so much from Indigenous people, we don't want to take away their stories either. So I wanted to tell what had happened to her from the perspective of those uh, very good friends she'd made in Stillwater Creek. Mm. And yet I do think that her story comes through in, in Indigo Sky in spite of the fact that it's not from her perspective. Um, and then I, I, I suppose I followed the... Um, the sort of format of Stillwater Creek, which was written from six points of view mm. in this this second book, and this is from five points of view. Some of them are slightly different people than in the, the first volume. But these volumes can be read independently, actually. I, I do want to emphasize that so that it's quite possible to pick up the Indigo Sky without knowing what happened in Stillwater Creek. So when you got the two, you knew you had a two-book deal. So when you were writing Stillwater Creek, did you already have plans for your characters in the next book or did that it, come later? In the third book or in the second book? In the, in the second book. Um, well, when I first heard about the sequel, I just didn't have a clue what I was going to write about because I'd never, <laughs> in my wildest dreams... Imagine that I'd, I'd, I'd get a two-book deal. Um, 
so then I had to spend a bit of time thinking about where I wanted to go from there. And it took a while. I mean, one of the, one of the stories came almost immediately. I really wanted to tell that story. But the other one I had to... It wasn't until I'd finished writing the first draft that I realized that I had to beef up the second story to sort of make it more balanced. And so it, that was quite a challenge, actually, and with a contrast for me, because when I was working on the first book, I had a clear structure in my head of um, where I was going mm. and how I was going to work out the six different viewpoints but for the second one because I didn't have quite as much time because of the contract and so I think I ended up writing rather inefficiently <laughs> it's rather ironic isn't it that you think you you know if you have less time maybe you'd be a bit more efficient but I think it was a reverse for me <laughs> you, you say that never in your wildest dreams did you think you would get a two-book deal. When did you start writing fiction? Because your usual career is is in academia and it's in economics, which is a far cry from 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 writing fiction. Uh, when did you start yeah, writing fiction? Um, well, actually, I started very young. I'm at school. Actually, we had a fantastic teacher when I was in fifth class and she had us write in the composition classes a um, little novel, um, which was very um, enterprising of her, I think. So over a few weeks, we wrote a little novel. My little one was um, very much Swallows and Amazons, you know, mm-hmm. um, which was a lot of fun. So it was my very first novel, very short. Mm-hmm. And then I'd always wanted to, to write. I'd always read a lot, and my parents read a lot. And so in my 20s, I had another go at writing a novel, and I wrote a really awful one, which was, um, which I, I'm never going to show anyone. And um, <laughs> but I think that got out of my system because it was partially autobiographical, and I think it, that got out of my system the idea of writing anything that's autobiographical. I, I, I don't want to do that, and I, I think actually starting writers probably shouldn't do that mm. unless they view it as a practice run. So that by the time I got um, by 19, the 1990s, when I decided that I really ought to get on with it, with it, otherwise I was never going to write anything fictional, mm. I started doing short stories, um, not realising how hard it is to do mm-hmm. short stories. Very hard. Um, mm. But it was very good practice, I think. And so it, it taught me a bit about plotting and... It made my style, writing style, a bit looser because to begin with it was sort of very formal, mm. the way you might expect an economist <laughs> <laughs> to be writing, mm-hmm. sort of stiff and formal. And then it um, it sort of relaxed a bit and I learned to write a little bit more colloquially. But actually my favourite short story, and I'm not that I've done, um, which got published was from three different points of view, all first person, all present tense. And it was that that gave me the idea of writing Stillwater Creek from Mm. different viewpoints. Initially, I tried to write that in the present tense and then um, decided to make it in the past tense. Mm. And so do you have to put a different hat on when you're doing your academic writing? Um, Because, as you say, that kind of writing is entirely different to what you do when you're doing your creative writing. How do you get into the zone? Um, It's... It, it, it's definitely turning a switch off in my head and, and, and putting another one on. 
Um, the way I work is when I'm writing a story, I try to spend maybe three quarters of an hour a day, or an hour a day, morning or evening, or at the weekends a bit more, um, just doing that very intensively, the, the creative bit. And the reason I do it in pencil and paper is that I can do that anywhere. Um, and I can. it also means that I can do it very fast because mm-hmm. I'm a very slow typist. I only do 30 words per minute. And, mm-hmm. and it's also too much like my day job. So in a way, I think it's picking up that 2B pencil and piece of paper that turns a switch on to letting more creative stuff flow out very fast. Mm. But, of course, it's very bad the first time. You know, that then I dictated into a word, um, into word using this wonderful package called Dragon Speaking Naturally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, that's got used to my voice and accent, so that's pretty good at um, typing it all up. And then I realised it's been badly written and I have to do about another 15 edits before it makes any sense. So, so because I work that way, I can do little bits fairly regularly around the margins of the day job. Mm. So you have your day job, which is um, something that you do full time. Where do you, do you, do you, how do you squeeze it in? How do you juggle it all? Or do you set certain days or certain hours or do you actually fit it in the gaps? I, I fit it in the gaps. I do it, um, if I'm going on a train journey, I'll take my piece of paper with me. And um, I do it in the, I prefer to do a bit in the evening, not very much, just a bit. But when I've got to um, a f- quite a few thousand words, maybe 50, 60, then I need to get away from everyone for a week mm. and, and just work very intensively on it so that I can see the whole thing in perspective. And then I get very irritable as well because it, I think at that stage... I get obsessed with it and I can't sleep and you know, I'm working all the time. So I actually don't think I'm the sort of person who could do this full time. <laughs> <laughs> and so how do you get out of the obsession? Do you just um, come out of it naturally at some point or do you have to finish something? I have to finish something. <laughs> and that even if I think it's only a, an initial draft or mm. I, I have to finish and then I have to leave it for a while. Mm. Do you set yourself word targets? Um, I did at the beginning of the Indigo Sky um, in order to get up to, there was a sort of like a psychological barrier. Um, So I set word targets of um, a thousand a day Mm -hmm. for a couple of months. That was really quite hard going what we're working in the daytime as well. Mm. And I think that's unrealistic for me. But anyway, I did it until I got up to that. And then, then I felt that I'd got over the first hurdle mm. and then I could relax a bit more. But for this last one, which I'm currently working on, the third one, mm. um, I'm not doing that because it, it... I mean, you mentioned in your list of questions mm. that at what point does it start to shift from being an escape mm. to being another job of work and I think for me if if I say okay I've got to do a thousand words every day Mm. it starts becoming not an escape but a job of work and you know I may as well 
not be doing it because it's not so um, such an escape. So it is, it is an escape for you. It is very much so. But I think in, I think in part it is because when doing say the three quarters an hour an hour um, with the pencil and paper, it's intense concentration, mm. and you have to concentrate so hard that you forget everything else. Mm. And so when you come out of that, you feel better because you've forgotten all of the other worries. Right. So in that sense, it's an escape. That, that's all I meant really by that. Sure. And so when you created this town and the people and, and that kind of thing, did you just start with the seed of an idea or did you know a town or people like that? Was it based on some real things in your life or did you go and research heavily and then create the town? How did it all, how did this world get created? That's a very good question. Um, I think it was more that I started with the characters and then I decided, well, where am I going to place them? And then because of being in Canberra and and also my childhood um, and seeing so many very small Australian towns, I thought how lovely it would be to set it in in a fictional one of those. Mm. So, I, so that's how it arrived, sort of more or less spontaneously when I got the characters organised. Mm. When you were writing the first and second books, did you know there was going to be a third? <clears throat> um no, no, I didn't. <laughs> so when did that come into your head? When did you decide that that was going to happen? Actually, uh, one of my good friends said, this, Maggie Helen, she said to me um, when I'd finished the third, and she said, oh, why don't you go and ask the um, publisher, if she, publisher if you can have a contract for a third? <laughs> and I thought, what a wonderful idea, because I didn't really want to give up the characters yet. Right. Um, I actually wanted to write something 10 years on. And so I did that and they agreed. And then, so that's how it happened. Again, it was accidental, really. Right. And so when you started writing Stillwater Creek, you, yes. you know, wouldn't have, you, 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 you started writing your novel and you didn't have a contract yet when you first no, started writing? No, no, I didn't, no. So can you tell us the steps then? What happened to eventually get that contract? Um, the, the first thing was getting the agent. Mm. So I tried, I sent, um, I've forgotten, I think it was three chapters or something off to, um, two agents and one of them, actually both asked to see the full one and then one of them made, offered to represent me, that was Australian Literary Management, mm. um, moderately quickly and then they spent a long time making me improve it. Right. That was that was really useful. Right. Um, really useful. I think I was very, very lucky to have that. And I think that for people starting out, this is the, the best way to go to get the agent and um, to, to help you. Because I really thought it was very polished by the time I sent it to an agent, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time they sent it to the publisher, they only sent it to one, Random House was the first one, and it um, was very polished by that stage because it had been through mm. so much work. And so I think that's why it got accepted so quickly. But with the second one, it wasn't so polished. I hadn't had so much time mm. to work on it. But the publishers by that stage were 
um, you know, they were waiting for it and they had lots of fantastic advice for how to improve the editing of it, mm. which again I found invaluable. And this is such a learning experience. I think every um, writing endeavor I'm learning new stuff all the time, which is fun. That's how it should be, I reckon. Mm-mm. Have you made plans for your fourth? No. <laughs> no, I've got to finish doing the, the third, which, I mean, one of the one of the fun, fun things about the um, historical writing is that you can do lots of research, and I really love doing that. That's a leisure activity mm. for me, getting the books out of the library and reading a bit of history. Mm. And I'm married to an, an economic historian, so we can talk about these things. and so when you do your academic writing now because it sounds like you really enjoy and get a lot out of the creative writing as you say it's your escape so when you do your academic writing now do you do you still enjoy that (laughs) I I do it I do but I'm much more selective now about what what I'm I'm going to do because I've I've decided I think you know when you get to a certain point in your life you think well I've only got X more years to go and I want to do work on stuff that really matters to me. And mm. so but I think that's in part why the creative writing emerged, but, but it's also making me say, okay, well, I only want to do academic work that I find really exciting. Mm. And so I'm doing some more behavioral economics now, which is an experiment. And so that, that's great. And so when you um, started becoming more intensive in your creative writing and really honing your creative writing and uh, obviously becoming more serious with it as a published author, did you find at all that your academic writing changed a bit or did any of that seep in? Um, I, don't, I don't think I'm the best person to ask that, actually. I <laughs> Um, maybe I'm a bit shorter than I used to be mm-hmm. um, with academic writing. I've always liked writing that's a bit short anyway, but maybe I'm a little bit more parsimonious in the way I write now. Mm-hmm. Do you think you would explore other genres? No. No. Happy no. to stick with fiction. Yes, yes. I mean, I used to, when I, was, when I was very young, when I was a child, I used to write poetry, but I think too difficult I think mm. I, I think I like doing what I'm doing at the moment and so what sort of books and authors inspire you that make you go oh my god I am not worthy <laughs> you know what oh, I mean yes, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean yes uh, yeah I think Patrick White is is one who every time I, I, I read and reread Patrick White mm. and every time I think oh only I could write like that <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Tony Morrison, I love, and Australians, um, I love Kate Grenville's books, and Peter. I really like Peter Carey's latest book, um, Parrot and Olivia in America. Mm-hmm. So I, I read extremely wide, widely, actually, and um, what I've read recently is Rose Tremaine's books. I've just discovered Rose Tremaine, mm-hmm. and I've just finished reading Music in Silence, which I've really loved. Mm-hmm. So I guess I, I, I read very widely and many of the books I read, I think, oh my goodness, I wish I could write like that. Mm. Tim Winton's another one. And so um, what would your advice be to 
budding writers out there who, you know, not necessarily young ones emerging from school or university, but mm. people who are professionals like yourself who are in, who are successful in their careers and they've got this novel in their head or perhaps even in their bottom drawer. What's mm. your advice to them? Um, I think to keep at it and to have faith in it, um, if if it's in their bottom drawer and they don't think it's going to go any further, to put it aside and start on another one. Um, because I, I really do think this is a very long apprenticeship mm. um, fiction writing, at least going on my experience. It, it's a long apprenticeship. And I'm not sure that it's a good idea to but others would, I'm sure, disagree to spend too long on one thing if it's not going anywhere, but to maybe think, move sideways and try something else. Mm. And, and not to be put off by rejections, because I think that, in part, creative writing is to satisfy yourself. Mm. Um, and I think there are also fashions in what publishers will take. Um, and I think, in a way, I was lucky that 1957... I mean, when when I first started writing that, a, a couple of people said to me, "Oh, don't do nineteen, don't do the nineteen fifties. Mm. No one's interested in the nineteen fifties." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's wrong. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, yeah, so I don't be put off by what anyone says as well. No, geez, I mean, look at the success of things like Mad Men and <laughs> extreme yes, popularity. Yeah. <laughs> and what would your advice be also? Because I mean, you were able to hone and polish your manuscript further through your agent, but for people who won't have an agent yet, what would your advice be to them to hone and polish and improve their writing? I guess um, writers' groups mm. would be, you know, and getting friends to read it and friends that they trust. Did you um, do that? Did you go to writers' um, groups and have readers? I, I went to one um, writing course run by Maggie Hammond, mm -hmm. Um, she wrote Creative Writing for Dummies, mm -hmm. which was published, I think, maybe two two years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, there were a lot of cancellations just before that. There were supposed to be six people going, and mm. I ended up being the only one. There was some event, I think it was the July bombing or something, mm. um, some awful event, and mm. there were cancellations, and I ended up being the only one. So I was very lucky. I had Maggie for one week right. reading my manuscript and making some fantastic plotting suggestions. Right. Because plotting is, you know, the area that I've found quite difficult. Mm. You know, maintaining six stories, I've, I found that very difficult. Mm. So so I was very lucky with that. But I, I should think, I'm sure there are lots of courses like that where it might be possible to get mm. good advice. And, of course, there are the writing centres as well. And with like your... Yeah, and with your six stories, did you have to – how did you get into the head? In How did you, you know, um, did you do anything in particular to really get into the different points of view? Because that's a very yes. hard thing to do. Um, this is when if I felt uh, there was some distance developing, I would change the um, person to first person from third person mm. and put it in the present tense. And if you do that, if you get first person present tense, I am such and such, you know, you immediately move into the head. Mm. And so there you are with the um, closeness that you want. But I do think Maggie Hammond's book is a, is a very good one for people to look at. Mm -hmm. 
And and in terms of the plotting, you were saying that um, you know that can be challenging. Did you actually plot it out, or did? Because some writers they 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 don't plot it out. They just let you know. Yeah. They see where the muse takes them. <laughs> yes, I've spoken to writers like that, and I I can't do that. I need to um, plot it out beforehand. Mm. So I do a table with six columns for the if there are six points of view, and then I do the timeline and the rows across it and then then and that also allows me to make to write only for an hour a day because then I can just pick a cell mm. and write it in that and so I can keep track of the whole thing. But I'm sure some writers would find that awful because it would stifle it's you know, cr- creativity. It's very systematic. <laughs> it's very systematic. Yeah, that's the economist's work. Yeah, is that on an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet? Um, no, actually, I've written Word. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and so, and finally, pa- fast forward um, maybe five years, paint us a picture of what you're doing, what you're writing, how you're juggling, if you're still juggling, um, your academic work and your your writing. Um. To be honest, I can't bear to think of that <laughs> um, because that's sort of, I just, in many ways, I feel I'm just keeping on top of of what I'm doing now because I'm, I'm in, in about two-thirds of the way through the first draft of the final volume. And so if I start coming out of that and thinking of any future work, mm. I lose the impetus to, to finish work through Sorry, volume three. Mm. So um, I'm preferring not to think about the future at all. Fair enough, but I'm sure it'll be great. (laughs) So on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Alison. Thank you. A pleasure. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.valeriekoo.com. That's Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O dot com. Thank you for listening.